Welcome to Radio Maria England for our Science and Faith programme, where we will be exploring the relationship between science and religion from a Christian perspective. This is Marta speaking. And this is Shimon speaking. We are your presenters today. We invited Professor Keith Fox and Dr. Hilary Yancey, and we'll be discussing genetic modification and whether modifying our genes is playing God. Professor Keith Fox is Director of the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion in Cambridge and also Professor of Biochemistry at Southampton University. He has special interests in bioethics, creation, evolution and genome modification. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm not sure if I've told you this, Jamon, actually, but I met Professor Fox um, at a summer course from the Faraday Institute at Lucy Cavendish. I think it was the summer of 2017, so my first year at university. You might not remember, uh, but it was very inspirational. And from, from the summer course, I started the UCL Christians in Science student group. So I was very, very inspirational. And I definitely wouldn't be doing this show if it weren't for that eye-opening experience. I've done quite a lot of research into you, <laughs> Professor Fox. But something I didn't know from that summer is that you are um, a licensed lay minister in the Church of England. What does that mean? Could you just explain that for us? Yeah, thank, thank you for your welcome. And thank you for coming along to our summer course all those years ago. It was, uh, they're very special occasions, those courses. Uh, yes, I'm what's called, what used to be called a lay reader in Church of England. Now we call them licensed lay ministers. It means I'm not ordained, um, but I, I, I am licensed to take services um, and, and to preach. Do you have to take a course for that? Uh, yes, there's large training for it. Now it's much more rigorous than when I first became a licensed lay minister 30 years ago. Uh, but yes, you had to do some training and it was three years worth of, of instruction and writing essays and not quite theological college, but it is. Uh, and that was all part time while doing another job. Wow. Wow. No idea. There we go. Now, now we, know, we know something new, Shimon. Yeah, that sounds great. And uh, let me introduce our second speaker, who is Dr. Hilary Yancey. Dr. Hillary completed her PhD in philosophy at Baylor's University last year, and uh, her research focused on metaphysics of the human body. And among her very many research interests, there are uh, ethics of end-of-life care, human enhancement, philosophy of disability, philosophy of religion, and, and many more. Um, so, Dr. Hillary, uh, you wrote a book uh, titled Forgiving God, a Story of, of Faith. And in this book, you speak about a story of your pregnancy and uh, uh, with your first uh, born son. Could you tell us a little bit more, like what did writing of this book mean to you? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I think my voice is going to stand out. <laughs> it's the only not British voice. But uh, I wrote Forgiving God about six months to a year after my son was born to explore what it had meant that we received a prenatal diagnosis of some pretty complex disabilities and what it had meant to my faith to sort of go through an unexpected turn in my pregnancy, some very challenging early medical interventions that my son needed, and thinking about that in the context of what it meant to pray for healing for my son, but also what it meant to embrace his life as a whole, as it was given to me. And so it was sort of a confluence. I wrote it while I was still in graduate school. So it was a confluence of emerging philosophy and 
new parenthood and then faith. Oh, thank you. This wow. is a very nice introduction yeah. to your book. That's, yeah, that's amazing. I've read your your blog as well, and it's it's really inspirational. Um, thank you so much. So I encourage everyone. You you can tell them where they can find you later. We'll give you a chance to, uh, to tell our listeners where they can find you later. But next, uh, we are incredibly lucky to be joined by our very own Catholic theology and science advisor, Father Robert. Um, he's a Dominican friar who is currently acting Catholic chaplain for the University of Cambridge at Fisher House. And before joining the order, he obtained a PhD in mathematics from the University of Cambridge and also worked as a software engineer. Father Robert is now working on his PhD in philosophy, which is on quantum physics and common sense, or in other words, what St. Thomas Aquinas would make of quantum physics. Thank you very much for uh, well, inviting me to be involved with this whole series. It's a, a great pleasure because faith and science is something I'm very passionate about. This is why I'm doing a second doctorate on the philosophy of physics and, and how it relates to uh, really theology and, and St. Thomas Aquinas. Good. I think we're ready to, to start. And uh, as I mentioned before, for today's episode, we'll be focusing on the question of whether modifying genes is playing God. But before we even can approach this question, um, I think we, can un we need to understand what the science of genetics is. And uh, our listeners uh, will be surely interested to hear about the role of Augustinian friar uh, Gregor Mendel and uh, the role he played in founding this particle of science. Father Robert, could you tell us a little bit more about the, about him? Okay, well, I can have a go. I mean, my uh, knowledge of genetics is very minimal, but I do know that Gregor Mendel, Father Gregor Mendel, who was an Augustinian friar, is considered to be a, the father of modern genetics. And so he entered the uh, Abbey of St. Thomas in Brno in Czech Republic as, as a young man, and when he was there, he, he did lots of experiments on uh, growing uh, pea plants. And when well, he was born in 1822, and these experiments were kind of run between sort of 1856 and 1863. And they said that they cultivated around you know, 28,000 pea plants during this time as he did these experiments. And he was really trying to understand uh, how various traits in these varieties of peas were passed on to the next generation. And um, so he, he was trying to understand what these hereditary factors were, which um, contributed to the kind of appearances of, of you know, certain characteristics of these pea plants. And so things like you could have uh, tall pea plants and uh, short pea plants and thinking about what would happen if you bred those pea plants. And you might think that you might get some a, a pea plant that was midway between being tall and short. But what he actually found was that if you bred these two different types of pea plants together, they all came out tall. And it seems rather surprising that if you take those crossbred pea plants and breed them together on the next generation, you have this surprising result that you end up with uh, three tall pea plants and one short pea plant. And so Gregor Mendel came up with this theory that there are these hidden hereditary factors, which subsequently uh, scientists refer to as genes. And he explained his results by saying that these genes, they come in pairs. And with the case of these pea plants, they have a dominant gene and a recessive gene. And so this means that you have one plant where both the genes are dominant and the other plant where both the genes are recessive. And so the, the ones that have the recessive genes are the, the plants that if they had both recessive genes, they'd come out 
uh, small. If they had a recessive gene and a dominant gene, they, the plant would come out tall. And if they're both dominant, then they'd be tall as well. And so he explained that there are a variety of how these traits were propagated in the plant species by speaking about these genes, which helps to account for their proportion of uh, how many plants end up being tall and how many plants being short. But I expect Professor Keith Fox, he's probably much more of an expert on this. I'm just an amateur, so you might be able to add something to that description. Well, Robert, that's a fantastic description coming from a physicist. I wish some of my biology students could give as good as one as that. Uh, yes, of course, Mendel was uh, very influential in looking at these simple characteristics of roughness and smoothness, tall and short, uh, ones that don't blend. Of course, now Mendel had no real mechanism for how that happened. Of course, now we know all about DNA uh, and genetics and if you like, the physical composition of what those genes are. Uh, and we understand some of those simple characteristics of how they can be dominant or recessive. Some, are, uh, if you like, show out over the top of other ones. And it still holds out for many, many conditions that there is a very simple change in the DNA that dictates whether something should be, for instance, in this piece, a rough pea or a smooth pea or a tall one or a short one. For many conditions, it doesn't quite follow as simply as that because the trait isn't determined by a single gene. There may be lots of genes that all come together uh, to give a particular characteristic, and each one may only have a small effect on, on the overall. And one gene influences another one. Genes mainly don't uh, act uh, by themselves. They interact in networks and cooperate together. So Mendel's studies were really, really influential in, in, in genetics. We know a lot more now because of all we know about DNA. We know, we know the sequence of the human genome, and we know some changes within that that can lead to characteristics that are simple in the way that Mendel's were, but a large number are far more complicated than that and in the interaction between the lots of genes. Um, that's fascinating. I, I just I was thinking about when I was teaching this much to my students in secondary school, those that do triple science biology, and they just, you know, they just can't fathom the fact that, you know, it happened, you know, so long ago and that he he couldn't call it genes because there wasn't word for genes. He would just call it hereditary units. And they just find it fascinating. And we've got a massive poster of him at the back of our classroom. And I think he's one of the perfect examples of how believers actually worked um, to advance science. So um, thank you so much for that. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for this explanation. It's very detailed and uh, it's good to have this understanding of how genetics roughly works. And I think it's a good starting point as well to, to kind of move on in our discussion. And we will be talking about now genetic modifications. So you know, different ways of how we can now change these genes, deliberately modify them. So maybe, Professor Keith, if you could tell us a bit more like, what we actually mean by a genetic modification, how is it different from other changes in DNA that occur naturally, for example? So DNA itself, give a little bit of the background to it, is this long repeating polymer of these units that we call A, G, C and T. And it's the order of each one of those in hundreds of thousands of them in, in a stretch that determines, if you like, the properties of a particular gene. And uh, a single change in one of those letters can sometimes have profound influences on the properties of that particular gene, the protein that's made from it, the way in which it's made and the way in which it is used. So little changes can have that effect. Now, those little changes occur randomly anyway. They're called mutations. They say that every time there is a new person, 
that they have roughly 30 different mutations that weren't there in either of their parents. They just occur uh, randomly. Most of them are totally silent. They make no difference at all. But every now and then one pops up that actually has quite a debilitating effect on the progeny. In terms of genetic modification and the new techniques is to be able to go into the human genome and know that if you like mistake, if we want to call it that, that mutation that's happened, whether it's inherited or it's spontaneous, and to be able to correct it. So to change, say, a letter that was an A that had changed to a T that gave a, a mutated characteristic, can we change it back again? And uh, until really 10 years ago, more recently than that, that was pretty much the stuff of science fiction. The human genome is, well, it's three, th three billion, that's three with nine noughts after it, of those letters in there. And you can see that hunting for one letter amongst three billion is like looking, it's worse than looking for a needle in a haystack. Uh, so the technologies weren't there. But within the last 10 years, new technologies that are very precisely able us to go in and reach a particular sequence of that and to change it at will to what we want to. It's called the CRISPR-Cas, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about the technology for that as, as, as we go on. But it allows us to choose uh, how we can uh, alter the, the sequence of that. Uh, ones that occur naturally, they're inherited from parents, they say they occur spontaneously. But this allows us to go in, at, in an individual cell and to change the DNA at will, to make it what we want, to correct, if you like, what we might deem to be incorrect. So it looks like the difference between just a mutation and then genetic modification is that mutation kind of happens spontaneously as a natural process, whereas genetic modification is something that we introduce deliberately and quite directly, right? Because we can also introduce mutations just by you know, breeding plants towards different phenotype, right? Would you consider that a genetic modification or more a kind of directed evolution in this sense? Yes, I mean, that's a very good question. It is that many of the plants and the crops that we use, of course, they're not the same as the ones that would occur naturally in the wild. We've done that by selection, kind of, I don't know, human-driven evolution, where we're, we're choosing the ones that have the characteristics that we want, that have high protein or high sugar content or look, look nice. So we've been doing that for centuries, millennia, really. Within the past sort of 50 years, we've been able to do some of that directed. We can take genes from one plant and put them in another one. We can take genes from one organism and put them in plants and vice versa. Those are working with whole genes, introducing a new characteristic and resistance to a pesticide, for instance. And, and some people see it as controversial, the whole area of genetic modification of plants so as to increase the yield, make them more drought resistant, all those sorts of things, have extra vitamins in them that, that, that really help uh, in deprived environments. But that's introducing whole genes and really it's used particularly for plants. It could be used for animals, but it was a bit of a clunky technique. But now rather than introducing a whole gene, is the simplicity with which the CRISPR-Cas technology allows us to not just change a gene, but to change just one letter and to do that at will and to design it so that you can change one letter at will wherever you want in the genome. It's very, very, at least in theory, very, very precise. Dr. Jans, I was wondering, because you've done, at least it, it is one of your interests to talk about human enhancement. So why do you think the scientific community is interested in modifying genes and what can we achieve with these genetic modifications? I think that's a good question. So I think part of it is that 
we tend to have an interest in precision and the elimination of as many external variables that could be affected as possible. So in the cases of breeding, I'm thinking, you know, of both plants, but also of non-human animals. So dogs, for example, if you want to breed for a specific trait, often there are untoward consequences. I think a famous example is right, breeding for a certain color of golden retriever or yellow Labrador would almost inadvertently, but very consistently yield hip problems for the dog. And the idea of, I think, moving towards more and more precise enhancement is to achieve the the sort of particular thing you're aiming at, either aesthetically, therapeutically, what have you, while eliminating those sort of untoward consequences. And so moving towards a technology where you can change a single letter, I think the idea is I'm going to keep all fixed everything I want to keep while still being able to make a small change that achieves the end I'm looking for. So it looks like genetic engineering is like a tool that we can use to make these changes more precisely. Whereas when we just breed animals or plants, we can move towards one trait, but kind of drag together other changes that might be actually unwanted. I think that's very important and it's slightly different from Mendel's simple view it is that genes, I feel like, are arranged one after another one along our chromosomes. And by selecting naturally, by selecting to one gene, you will necessarily bring with it the genes that are next to it. They don't move in isolation. <laughs> so, so as Hillary's very rightly said, sometimes you select for one characteristic and you accidentally produce the, the one that is affected by the gene that's adjacent to it because they just move together. Whereas in genetic modification, we can select very precisely. We'll have that one and we'll leave another one alone. Okay. So just very briefly before we go on a break, are they always propagated to offspring? So if we genetically modify something, is it always propagated to offspring? Can they be undone? The answer to that is, in most instances, yes. It depends what we're talking about, I suppose. If we're modifying something that affects the germ cells, so if we're talking about humans for a moment, so sperm and eggs, if we did that modification, it would inevitably carry on to the next generation and effectively would be irreversible. I mean, you could you could re-modify the sperm and eggs that come from, from that one, but within that individual, it's permanent. The technology can be used on the whole people, so adults, children, the full individual. It's less precise, and of course there are trillions of cells in a human body, and they're not going to manage to modify all, however many trillion of them there are. You might only modify a small proportion. In that case, you could get a genetic modification of an individual that could reverse a, a genetic condition that wouldn't be carried on to the next generation, that would simply restrict it to that individual alone because it would not have modified their germ cells, whether that's sperm or, or, or eggs. That's a very, a very special form of genetic modification. You can see that in most instances, that's not going to be successful in whole people because you've just got too many cells to modify. In some instances, it does work. I mean, there are one or two diseases that are specific to a particular tissue and that modifying enough cells in those tissues is sufficient to, to overcome the, the defect. But those are quite rare. There are, I think there are examples in the literature now of that having been done for sickle cell anemia and for thalassemia on whole people. 
And in those instances, that is restricted to the individual. And actually, to be honest, I don't think there's much of a, an ethical question in that. It, it, you know, the individual usually has made the choice to, to do it themselves. They've got full autonomy, etc. And it's not pa passed on to any other unsuspected generation. But if we're talking about germ cells, uh, then that is a permanent change. And it is from one generation on to the next one. I'm glad you mentioned ethics because that's going to be the next part of our show. But before that, I don't know about you, Shimon, but I need a cup of tea. So, so far, we have discussed the uh, science behind genetic modifications. We heard about different examples and how we can use these genetic modifications, how what difference they can make and why we actually use them. Now we would like to focus on the moral aspects. So I think there will be a question to all our speakers. What do you think should guide us in determining the appropriate use of genetic modification? What principles in general we should apply when we decide whether we should go ahead with certain modifications or not? Dr. Yancey, could you start us off maybe? Um, sure. Um, so I, I think there's a number of questions. You know, as a philosopher, I'm probably going to ask you more questions than give you answers, but hopefully the questions will help us move forward nonetheless. And one thing I think we have to think about is that in most healthcare contexts, um, a boundary around treatment is, is informed consent to the notion that individuals ought to have a say in the treatments that they undergo and that this say should not be a sort of merely uh, do you want X procedure without a substantial explanation of its risks, its benefits, the likelihood of its success. Obviously, in the case of genetic modification, this becomes a little bit tricky because we're talking, as Professor Fox was saying, in cases where there may not be the relevant individual yet. If we're modifying germ cells, um, we're making changes to a person who has not yet come into existence, but also in some ways effectively pre preventing a certain individual with that genome from existing. Uh, and so I think one thing we should think about is what does informed consent look like in this context? What would it mean for parents to undergo informed consent on behalf of potential children? Is the boundary around modifying one's own germ cells? Is it something that we should think about in the context of the children, right, or the offspring who, who have not yet been born? Um, so that's one thing I think about. And then the other is, uh, probably has a less specific term, but I think we have to ask some good questions about what kind of lives we deem valuable um, and the, the real social structures that, are, that surround that. So often in um, my research about disability, we have a number of deeply held assumptions about the kinds of lives that are good and worth living um, and the kinds of conditions that interfere with that. But we, we need to ask questions, not just about a given medical condition as it's expressed either genetically or even at the broader sort of phenotypic level, the level of someone living with a condition, but also how do we decide whether it's good or neutral or bad to have a certain condition? You know, lots of, uh, lots of things that we call illness or disease, they have really different expressions within individuals in the same population. So one could have two identical genetic conditions, but live very different lives because of how it's expressed in the actual individual. But we can also, depending on our social structures and our access and our inclusion, 
people might have really different experiences of living with even a challenging physical condition. And so I think that has to be part of the conversation too. Yeah, I think that's very helpful what you said there. And I wouldn't disagree with any of that, is that the, the, the ability of the individual to choose, uh, to have consent, and that we are in danger of discriminating, uh, of actually being what we might be calling an ableist society, that we define what we call able. And that plenty of people with disability actually live perf- very fulfilled lives, as fulfilled, if not much so, than those that we, we label as being healthy, quote unquote. And what is a, what is a weakness for some actually becomes a strength uh, for others. And it varies so much from one individual uh, to, to another one. So having a blanket uh, decision that a certain disability shouldn't be allowed and to discriminate against those people and almost to say, we wish they'd never been born is an awful thing to say, because that's if like some of the knock-ons we're saying. If we could modify to stop a particular condition, we are in effect saying to those who've already got that condition, well, we find it uncomfortable to have you amongst us. And uh, we almost wish you hadn't been born. We'd done something to change you before you've been born. Now, there's a a fine line there because, of course, we want people to be as healthy as possible. And it's always been part of the Christian mandate to be involved in healing and health and medicine, but also for looking after the vulnerable and the disadvantaged and for leaving the 99 to go and look after the one. So there is, it, I don't think there's any hard and fast rules you can put on that as to when it's a good thing and when it's a bad. I think there are some that we might always say are bad. But what can be good for one person can actually be uh, very different for somebody in a different situation. Yeah, I'd also, yeah, I agree with all uh, that's been said so far. And also, I think maybe also like a theological perspective, like from St. Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians, when he talks about the unity and diversity in, in a body. I think one of the sort of characteristics of, of something beautiful is this kind of the ways diverse uh, elements can be unified into some kind of beautiful whole. And I think we can think about that both on the sort of individual level of a, of a human person about um, the, the, the unity in a human person, but also glo- a unity in, in a society where we have so many different characteristics and how, how we can sort of flourish together where the strengths of one person can help someone who has other weaknesses and how we can all ha- have this kind of harmony in society. And if we start sort of having this kind of preconceived idea of what a perfect human individual is or perfect society is, we actually will kind of miss some of the kind of beautiful aspects of, of our human society, which I think which bears, you know, being members of Christ's body manifest in our world. And we, I think we'd lose that if we have all these sort of preconceived ideas of what human perfection is. And we, we've got to open our hearts and minds how God sees human perfection. But in a way, it's kind of maybe a bit like thinking about art restoration. You can sort of maybe something like a, the Mona Lisa. You can maybe if there is some sort of damage to that, you might have kind of some ideas on on how to sort of uh, uh, touch it up slightly to, to bring it back to what uh, Leonardo da Vinci sort of intended. But then you could do things that are just completely bizarre and just don't go with it at all, like putting bright red lipstick on the, on the Mona Lisa. It'd just be kind of like an, an abomination. And, and you know, someone might say, well, I like red lipstick, but, you know, it's not going to add to the to the beauty of that picture. And so, so we have to sort of be just very careful and, and, and really discern what is God asking us to do in very challenging uh, situations. You know, how, how do we uh, discern his will in, in the use of these technologies? And I think it asks the question of what what is normal. I mean, I, I, I could be... 
uh, very uh, elitist and say there's only one per normal person here today and that of course is me <laughs> and uh, compared to me all of you are whether you're different and you will look and say that i'm I, I, i'm different and to we could envision it i feel like a science fiction scenario where we all had exactly the same genome and we'd be it would be monochrome and it'd be very boring and it would not make the diversity of the society and the relationships that we that we know and love uh, and to, to carry on with and you, you mentioned the apostle paul talk about his thorn in the flesh and what was a weakness actually became a strength and god's power and strength is shown in weakness but I think it's what's fascinating is uh, is to notice that we think we know the normal in lots and lots of places only to be proven wrong. And so um, even in what seem to us straightforward health issues, you know, where we might think, oh, I know what a healthy heart looks like and I know what an unhealthy heart looks like. It turns out that you actually have to ask a lot of questions about how does this person function in the world? Does the heart that they have function well for their body? And so I think one of the things about genetic modification that's a little tricky is that we don't, we, we're, we're moving away from a priority in healthcare about treating sort of expressed and experienced conditions to eliminating potential problems, right? So I think there's this interesting shift that I, as Father Robert was talking about and Professor Keith, the importance in the Christian tradition of healing, we have to, I think, start to ask is, is moving our priorities away from responding to people's lived experiences of their bodies and their health, um, both, I mean, spiritual, mental, physical, et cetera, towards something like tinkering with the range of outcomes you could have based on your genetics. Is, are we moving away from something like healing in that context? I, I think it's a, it's a really interesting question as to what, what is a disability and what is not, what is healing and what is enhancement. And uh, it, it's a fine, a fine line. Um, I mean, at, at, at least two of us here wearing glasses. So what, what is normal? Is it 20, having 20-20 vision normal? No, I'm I'm perfectly healthy with with my glasses to, um, to to help my vision. So that there is there are clearly things that we would say are enhancements. I mean, if we could had echolocation in humans, that clearly is abnormal. That would be an enhancement on our normal physical properties. That normally bats do that, not humans. Um, uh, but there are other things which uh, are, are not so crazy in enhancement. And where is the boundary between what's normal uh, and not? I mean, another example of those who are born deaf through a genetic disability. Uh, there are many in the deaf culture who say that deafness is not a disability. It's a different culture. They, they use sign language to communicate. And there was a legal case, I think, where a few years ago, where a couple who were genetically deaf, deaf asked, could an embryo be selected so that that embryo also would definitely be genetically deaf. Actually, the lawyer said, no, we weren't allowed to select for an absence of a characteristic uh, in in vitro fertilization. But so they don't see it as a disability. Those of us who are fully hearing do see it as a disadvantage not to be able to hear properly. But for those who are part of the deaf community, it's just a different way of living. Yeah, I think it's all well and sometimes I think people get really overwhelmed with these things and ultimately what people want to know is what moral principles as a Christian do I apply 
and please just tell me which genetic modifications are morally permissible. It looks like it's important to make these distinctions. Uh, you mentioned a few different examples. So previously we spoke about healing sick cell anemia, for example, right? By modifying not the germline, but the actual cells in the body. Then we talked about healing disabilities through um, germline, right? So embryonic modifications. And then just some examples of non-therapeutic enhancements. One of these examples would be Scientists, for example, in China modified a human embryo using CRISPR that we mentioned previously to provide resistance to HIV infection. The question is, is it not good that we want to make human immune to these disease? Which moral principles do we apply to each different type of modification? Well, that example of resistance to HIV is uh, a good one. So the mutation that the Chinese scientist is alleged to have produced, although I think it has not ever been published in the peer-reviewed scientific literature, and he is actually now in jail for having done that, oh, that wow. it produced a, muta a, a, a gene that actually is there in the human diversity in very low proportions anyway. It's, I mean, to be technical, it's something called the CCR5 receptor, which is one of the things that the HIV binds to to get access to our cells. Uh, and there are a very small number of people who have naturally a mutation in that and are resistant to HIV infection. So doing that to those uh, human embryos uh, and the twins that were supposed to have been born probably would make them resistant to HIV. But there are other ways of avoiding HIV infection rather than actually making that if you're exposed to it that you uh, don't uh, you aren't infected by the virus so is it that was if you like is that a necessary therapeutic intervention and i think i would say no it isn't a necessary intervention and there are all sorts of other problems in that case as well there was not proper uh, parental consent in that case he hadn't gone through the proper ethical committees there are plenty of ethical committees there in china everything was just very very wrong with that particular case which is why he's now in jail and I think it, it's probably worth mentioning, too, that we think that illness is this sort of obvious bad that we should prevent in all cases everywhere. But I, I want to trouble that just a little bit. Certainly, we want to alleviate physical suffering. We want to enable people to live flourishing lives on the whole. But first of all, I think, you know, it's not obvious to me, at least at this point, that in every case when someone is sick, that means their life on the whole is bad. Or that if I just took away that particular component of their life or that experience, their life would, as a result, be better. But that's effectively what we say when we do things like try to eliminate a disease as a whole. I'm not, I'm not saying at all that we shouldn't be working towards those things. I just want to notice that if we were to say straightforwardly, all illness is bad, every experience of illness is always bad, you'd always be better off having never gone through the experience of being sick. I don't know that we know that yet. Um, I don't know that that's, it, it's as straightforward as that. But is it... Is it not genetic modification just another form of treatment? Because we use medical treatments, um, pharmacological treatments to treat disease. Is pharmacological treatment also not accepting the 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 fact that you know we are all different? So I think the you know I'm still trying to tease out the distinction in my own mind, um, but I do think there's something about the idea of eliminating the mere possibility of an experience at the outset, which is what we do in a genetic modification where we're aiming to prevent 
the, the possibility of this ever happening and treatment of an of a lived experience that someone's undergoing. Now, it's also the I think this is where it gets tricky, right? Even as a philosopher myself, I uh, vaccinate my children. I think it's right to vaccinate my children. I'm teaching their immune systems, right, to prevent them from getting measles or from getting rubella, and that seems right. So then I think that the next question is, if we want to be resistant to at least some kinds of genetic modification, we're going to need some good distinctions about what makes all sorts of things we've accepted up till now perfectly fine. So what would then our basis for saying, but not no to this or that modification? And the last thing I'll just say is one thing I've been wondering about since getting ready for this interview that I don't have an answer to, I hope maybe somebody else does, is how do we tell when something is therapeutic or not? So I'm thinking of cases where, not at a genetic level, but suppose that I wanted to have what many people would take to be a cosmetic procedure, say rhinoplasty or some other sort of modification right to my body. Most of the time we take those to be non-therapeutic. I think much of the time we might assume they're non-therapeutic, right? It's some kind of enhancement or change. Maybe it's neutral. But suppose that I really suffer psychologically and emotionally from a, a sense of alienation between sort of the face or the features I imagine having and the features that as given. I don't I don't know. Is is there such a clear-cut distinction between when something is therapeutic and when it's not? I think that's fascinating what you've just been saying. And, and some of that actually is, I think, the, the blame, if we want to use that word, comes back on society. Why do people sometimes feel uncomfortable with their own bodies? As they, it's because of the way they think that every pe- everybody else expects them to be and everybody views them. So I, I think there is those sorts of underlying principles. So to go back to where we started also is that we, we, we're used to organ transplants. I suppose we go back 50 years ago, uh, some organ transplants would have seemed, well, yuck, you can't do that. A heart transplant? Now, when the first ones, of those, the very thought of walking around with somebody else's heart inside you um, seemed abhorrent, really unnatural. Now, not that it's a simple procedure now, but we've got to get used to it. But this genetic modification effectively a DNA transplant. Uh, uh, <laughs> is, is there an analogy there? I think the analogy breaks down because we're doing something that's a little bit more fundamental to the person. And if it's certainly it can be inherited to the next generation in a way that organ transplants are. But I think that we still need to ask those sorts of questions. Right. I think you've left me with more questions than when I had at the start. But that's a good thing and a positive thing. So thanks, uh Thanks, Dr. Yancey, for the the warning at the start. Thank you for joining us on Radio Maria England for our Science and Faith programme. We are so very pleased to host Professor Keith Fox and Dr. Hilary Yancey to discuss genetic modifications and whether modifying our genes is playing God. Uh, Thank you, Marta, for coming us back. So, so far in this episode, we discussed a lot of things about the science of genetic modification and the moral aspects of it and certain dilemma that can arise from the possibility of modifying our genomes. We started off uh, talking about Gregor Mendel, who is the Augustinian priest who kind of founded the uh, science uh, of genetics. Now it kind of developed into uh, the situation where we are confronted with sometimes difficult uh, situation when 
we have a possibility to modify our human uh, genomes to edit out some disabilities, as we discussed before. So my question to you would be, how us as Christians should respond to these questions, to this dilemma? Where can we find inspiration to, to kind of navigate these difficult areas? So one thing I, I find myself thinking about is the, the need for discernment um, about how we prioritize our research and our developments. So... I'm thinking here that uh, scripture gives us a rich picture of the people, the groups, and the conditions that God is particularly concerned about. So I'm thinking here in, in all of Torah, but uh, particularly, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy, God's emphasis on caring for those who are marginalized, the poor, the orphan, the alien, the widow, um, all of which give us a, a picture that God is not unconcerned, right, with those who are oppressed and those who are marginalized. And so I think one principle might be, are we incorporating into the very research questions that we're asking and the treatments we are developing a sense of how our medical advancements, our technological advancements are going to be serving those populations that we know God to be particularly concerned about how might this be balanced against the very real material needs that we also should be providing, right? If we devote all of our research efforts to fine-tuning the ability to switch an A for a T or vice versa in a gene, have we neglected other very real medical advances that will help those who are often neglected? So that's one thing I think that's important for us as Christians to be thinking about. The issue of justice comes into it as well as this is this sort of technology is not going to be cheap and it quite likely would only be available to those who are very wealthy um, and should we be investing our money in different ways then we need to be asking the question of what makes us better people if you like it might be a virtue type of ethics of being genetically enhanced or modified does that necessarily make, make somebody a better person because that's what we want, is it's people who are, if you like, more closely made in the image of God um, to, to behave as people who live in the kingdom of God, um, not necessarily those who are just physically able, but yet might be morally defective. Um, so I think all those sorts of what, what makes us good and loving and kind and peaceful and joyful, all those sorts of things, rather than just having healthy physical bodies. Uh, and it's difficult to say because I have a relatively healthy physical body. Um, so uh, who am I to speak uh, for mm -hmm. those who don't and to decide for them? So there's a, an element of uh, it has to come back to the individual. I, I, I don't think I am qualified to talk about somebody who has a different level of um, health uh, to mine. Um, uh, so we need to be, be very careful, I think, in the way that we that we make decisions on behalf of other people. So, so could I could I go to the Bible, for example, um, in, in somewhere in the Bible in any book? Could I find guidance on this, or maybe the Catechism for Catholics, Father Robert? Well, when I already mentioned uh, the first letter to the Corinthians, uh, chapter twelve, about this, you know, it talks about you know because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. There's a kind of the uh, 
um, sense in that we, we we do actually, despite all our differences and even our kind of weaknesses, you know, like you know, a foot can't hear, a, a ear can't smell, but despite all those differences together, you know, we form this community, this society of, of human beings. Uh, we're all, in a way, it's not sort of as isolated individuals that we reflect the image of God, but actually as a living community that we reflect the image of God. The Bible, you know, very clearly teaches us you know, that, you know, to respect this diversity in human existence. In the book of Genesis, when God created man and woman, so this complementarity, and we need to respect our, uh, you know, the complementarity, the, di- the diversity of human existence in reflecting God's image. Remember that we also live in a fallen world, so there are you know, things in, in the world where he permits disease and death, but it's not something that he positively desires, he, he allows it because he can bring some greater good out of that. And sort of trying to, um, you know, these, these kind of challenges and these difficulties, you know, it's brought out some wonderful uh, ingenuity in, in human creativity that in a way we sort of participate in in God's uh, act of creation but we need to th- be careful that, that just because we can do something doesn't mean that we we ought to do it so we need to really keep to the forefront you know how do I you know reflect the the image of God in in my life in the way I treat myself and treat those around me and you know we're, we're, we're old and remembering that ultimately you know we looked towards um, uh, the, the resurrection of the dead to a new heaven and a new earth. We need to be aware of there's only so much that we can do that we're not creating a substitute heaven here on earth. We look to the coming of God's kingdom. So we have to have that kind of that humility to know that there's only so much that we can do. Ultimately, you know, it's Jesus Christ who saves us and trying to understand how being incorporated into his body, how we can be really manifest his, his healing grace. I think that's very helpful. But to look at it the other way, Jesus went around healing people who had turmoil and sometimes they were dead. Um, So even more dramatic healings in Jesus' own ministry than we might see by some of the genetic modifications that we do. I think we need to get away clearly from the idea that being in the image of God is anything to do with our physical ability. God is spirit, not flesh and blood, and that we can be perfectly made in the image of God while having bodies that are falling apart. Right, I'm sure we all agree we could spend hours and hours talking about this. But I've got two final questions for all our speakers very, very briefly. The first one is, in one sentence, what should our listeners take away from this? And anything exciting for 2021? We need to get excited. Um, Any books coming up? Any publications, maybe? Professor Fox, could you start us off? Wow, books coming up. I have one coming out in March um, with Alexander Massman uh, on uh, is, is human genome modification playing God? Um, what was the first part of your question on that, Marta? Remind me. Uh, one sentence. Uh, in one sentence, because we've talked about many, many things. What yeah. could our listeners take away from this conversation? I think it's very exciting the sorts of things that we can do with genetic modification. Uh, we could look forward to some wonderful things, but I think we need to be careful what you hope for. Um, because we can open a Pandora's box. So look with excitement, uh, but be careful. Thank you. Father Robert? Yes, yeah, so we just need to uh, really be mindful of, of our human dignity and be respectful of our human dignity. And this is a very difficult question. So we have just, again, we have to act with care in acting in accord with, with what, who we are as, as human beings. Dr. Yancey? Oh, I think uh, it is to be humbly anticipating 
the the opportunity we have to work alongside God in the flourishing of the world, um, but to also be humble in both what we know and what we don't know. I think there's a vast amount we don't yet know about genetic modification and even the genes themselves. And so as we learn to have humility about what we don't yet know. And in terms of exciting things for 2021, I think I have a couple of papers coming out um, about disability and about illness and otherwise, you know, just continuing on. Lovely. Thank you so much. We're going to have blog posts uh, for this episode so you can check it out at Radio Maria England's website. And we'll be linking some websites where they can find the Faraday Institute and your website as well. Dr. Yancey. So uh, once again, just only gratitude in our hearts. It's been fascinating. It's been an absolute pleasure. You have been so accommodating and you've been gracious in ways we really couldn't have expected. We're not saying, we, we, we are saying thank you to Father Robert as well, uh, but not goodbye because Father Robert is going to be joining us in more episodes of this series. To our listeners, thank you for listening and being part of Radio Maria England Science and Faith. It's been a pleasure. This is Marta speaking. And this is Shimon speaking. Thank you for being here with us. And uh, for our listeners, see you next time for the next episode. Thank you. God bless. <laughs>